Welcome to the Bible Feed podcast. I'm Dan and I'm here with Paul Davenport and today we're going to cover a biblical theme. We've done a a few of these episodes and we try and take an idea, a concept that that runs through the Bible from, from Old Testament to New Testament and just try to to look at how it's used and we're going to be thinking about the devil and satan in this theme episode so yeah we've got some interesting things to talk about haven't we paul yeah i think so dan it's a topic that you know it's just two words but it very quickly the tentacles of the subject kind of grow wide and and more complex than it, it might at first appear and it brings in lots of related ideas and and words and i think we might need more than one episode to, to, to cover it and do it justice. Yep, I think that's right. I think just on its own, the devil and Satan, there's lots of different passages that are included, but but there are lots of other topics that kind of get dragged into a discussion on this, this theme, aren't there? Yeah, and immediately you can think of demons, evil spirits, unclean spirits, those those kind of subjects that come in and, and, and the great dragon yeah. appears... In various parts of the Bible, there's the serpent. There's this thing called Leviathan. Yeah, like L- Lucifer. You know, other other names that are often associated yeah. with with this this character, and the whole concept yeah. of angels and angels that have fallen, yeah, fallen possibly. Angels. Yeah, evil angels, fallen yeah. angels. So, so it'd be really great to consider all of those, or and in some way. And in some time, consider a lot of those <laughs> those ideas. We're sort of restricting ourselves at the start, aren't we, to to try and really dealing with the devil and Satan. And the question that underlies that range of topics and and the reason that there are different different perspectives on it is, you know, the question is: Are those real supernatural personal things, beings, or or are they something else? You know, that's that's. The question that underlies this yeah that's two quite different ways of understanding it isn't it but why is that so difficult though why, why do we have these these two views and, and then probably lots of different competing ideas as to what the devil might be but w- isn't it easy just to to work that out yes and no i guess okay. there, there are probably two big questions that that shape how we might view topics like like the devil and satan and and that influence the conclusions that we that we might come to and and it's probably good to just think about those those couple of questions okay. and and it will probably be a bit of a good foundation for for this episode and for the for the later ones that we do on this okay so what what you're referring to then what what these questions i think the first one is about worldview is about bringing a worldview to the way we read and understand the text of of the bible so and and in particular for this subject it's you know do we come to the bible with a worldview that is focused on there being one god you know monotheism or or do we come to it with um with something that is a bit more dualistic or dualism which sees the world as as a place where behind the reality that we experience there are opposing forces kind of constantly in conflict with each other good and evil you know maybe that comes out of monotheism as in there's one there's one god that made everything but then something went wrong and it created Mm. the situation in which there are two opposing forces of of good and evil so so that's the first question what worldview do we have in our head when we come to the text of the bible Mm. and just being conscious of that 
Yeah, okay. I can see that does make sense, actually. We've got passages that talk about the devil, and if we've got one or the other of those worldviews, a worldview mm. that has this conflict, dualistic way of viewing things, we're automatically going to to come to that conclusion. Whereas if mm. we've got something else, we're automatically going to come to a different conclusion. So we need to try and nail that one down then. What, what, what else is there? So the second question is a little bit more about how we read the ancient texts that we have in the Bible. They were written a long time ago. They were written in ancient cultures and they use terms and concepts that are ancient and probably unfamiliar in our modern Western world. And, and the question is, how do we interpret that language and those terms that are used? Do we just take them literally as, as they are? Or do we perhaps swing the other way and treat it all as pre-scientific views of the world and just dismiss it all and just kind of just put our own modern way of thinking mm. into the text instead? So it's how do we read these ancient texts and be clear about what's the timeless message that's coming through? Mm. What's the claim that the text is making? Albeit in ancient language that is referring to ancient concepts. Yeah, but there's also a risk that we dismiss everything because we think we're modern and more advanced. So there's two sort of yeah. extremes there, aren't there, that we've got to try and navigate. Yeah. So that's important for us to work out this worldview and then the other, you know, how do we treat the literature, as it were. I feel like we need to bring some scripture to bear on, on all this now. Yeah, I suppose we can bring scripture to that. You know, what is the worldview that the scriptures appear yeah. to present to us without bringing a preconceived one or, or an assumed worldview. And right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, we have in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it goes through the, the account of the six days of creation. And it's an account that the very clear message is God created all these things, and it which contradicts a polytheistic worldview. You know, you think of the, the gods of the Romans, the gods of the, mm. the Egyptians, they had a god of the sea, they had a god of the mountains, they had a god of fertility. Yeah. And, you know, in Genesis chapter one, God is creating all those things. And they're not gods, it's nature that God is, mm. is creating. And that's the worldview that starts out there in Genesis chapter one. There's one God mm. that created all these things. Um, if we go to Isaiah's prophecy and, and chapter 45, there's a little comment there about God's creation. It just says there, and I know I'm just picking it out, out of context, mm -hmm. but Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So it's all it's all God, you know, whatever our experience of reality, which includes well-being and it includes calamity, it's all God. It's not presenting opposing forces as being the cause of those things. Yeah. It's all coming from God. So so naturally, when you know reading the text that's there, that's the kind of worldview that we get from the Bible. Yeah, just seeing the, the verse before, you know, Isaiah actually, God is saying, there's none besides me, I am the Lord, there is no other. So it's in that context that, mm. yeah, that's an Old Testament worldview. It's worth just thinking through, is there a, a change in the New Testament or is there consistency? Yeah, and it does seem to be consistent. There's just perhaps a few verses that I'd just call out from Romans chapter 8. So verse 18 there says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, I mean, now there's quite a lot going on mm. in those, those few verses. But the, the point is that creation was made and it's subject to futility. It's got these elements of corruption, but it's all presented 
as a deliberate state of affairs which is leading towards an intentional outcome in in God's purpose. It's not an accident. It, there's not some unpredicted mm. cosmic rebellion that has set opposing forces of good and evil against each other and set them in conflict. It's a situation which is troubling at times, but is an intentional part of a purpose that has a great outcome. Okay. I mean, you've just led us to some quite difficult and challenging parts of the Bible, haven't you? Genesis 1 is a whole question in itself, isn't it? Which we touched a very little bit on in the, the Genesis book overview mm. episode. But just to sort of try and work through what you're saying, there is... A, the way the Bible is presented in contrast to other ways that people view the world is that there's one God and that one God is in control of all things. And there is this world that we have, which is full of good and evil, uh, of enjoyment and suffering, is a product of his plan and his purpose. And there isn't some kind of chaotic battle going on in history that has resulted in this world that we're in. The Bible's presenting something differently. So that should then shape our worldview when we come to other topics. Because people, I think, when considering the devil, would very quickly go to things like the the serpent in the Garden of Eden and how that appears to be some kind of power opposing God. There is an appearance of a conflict going on. For example, the serpent. Isn't that what that is? It's the start of a rebellion against God from whoever this serpent is. I suppose when we read the text and we just take it in terms of what's there, we started in Genesis 1, the six days, everything was very good. And presumably the serpent was you know, part of that creation and included in that description. And it has this little description at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3, doesn't it? The serpent was more subtle mm. or, or cunning. Now, in English, those words have a negative connotation, don't they? They have an idea of that being malign. That's not really the sense of the Hebrew. It's a morally neutral word. Okay. It just means clever. So there's nothing really there in the text that indicates a, a hidden behind-the-scenes malign power. You only read that into the text if you're already bringing that worldview to mm. it. This is kind of the point that we were making earlier. If you bring that worldview to that text, yes, you will think, it's not really this serpent. You will think, ah, oh, there's something behind that. And I would say the key point to help us keep grounded in our reading of the text is, is to make sure we read the text that's there, not what we think might be hidden behind it. Mm. Okay, so that's your point, isn't it? What worldview you bring to the text will influence how you read it. And so when we mm. come across the serpent, we might assume that he is a rebellious angel or whatever. If we've got if, that if you've got that in our mind already. Yeah. That that worldview. But actually yeah. yeah, but the text doesn't say that. Okay. So yeah. I'm sure there's lots of questions that come from this because of course the serpent is is referenced in the New Testament, which we'll get to, I'm sure, whether or not it's this episode. We'll have to get to that at some point and then see whether that influences how we read it. So 
So let's just move on to that second question then. That was about interpreting the Bible as ancient texts, ancient language. What guidance do we yeah. take from scripture about this? This is an interesting area actually that I, I find interesting. Over recent decades, quite a growth in, I think it's called comparative studies and we're mm. not going to get into the technical or academic aspects of that. But what that discipline, that comparative study is about interpreting the texts of the Bible, recognizing they're ancient, they were written a long time ago, and looking at other texts outside the Bible that were perhaps from a similar period and comparing them with the Bible text and trying to use them to help us interpret the Bible texts. And to take an example of that in these ancient texts about creation, the state of the world pre-creation, if you like, is described as a situation of chaos with chaos waters. And these waters are full of huge, scary monsters, <laughs> powerful beings. And it's an unordered, chaotic, pointless, purposeless picture of things. And then people note that the word in the Hebrew that's used to describe the deep, you know, the darkness was on the face of the deep right at the beginning of Genesis chapter one. Yeah. That's a similar word to these chaos monsters and there's a connection there so that might help us just understand what genesis chapter one is starting with is a picture of a world without order without function without purpose it's formless and purposeless okay so it sounds helpful to do this and helps us to live in the world in which these writings were written which which is always definitely going to mm. help us understand them them better what what issues might we come across or how can we safeguard coming to wrong conclusions i suppose the problem arises if the bible text like in that reference to the deep is referencing some ancient cultural idea in order to make a point but if we then draw a conclusion from that reference which contradicts the main message of the text that we've got in front of us then that's a problem so for example take that connection the deep it, it seems to be connected with these ideas in other ancient texts about chaos waters full of great sea monsters mm. and these other beings if we draw the conclusion from that actually what the bible is telling us is that there are other scary beings divine yeah. beings or semi-divine beings out there then we've contradicted the main message of that passage, which is there's one God. Yeah. There's only one God and he's created all things. Yeah. So, th so that makes sense, actually. It just reminded me that in the creation story on the, the fifth day, it talks about verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures. And I'm pretty sure great sea creatures in some translations is translated sea monsters, yeah. isn't it? And that yeah. seems to be and a it, deliberate seems... way of God saying, the author saying, this God just creates these things, actually. These aren't mm. other gods who are warring against the real god. Mm. These are just part of his creation. So if you took the ancient reference to the deep and the chaos waters and thought, oh, actually, so it looks like there are other beings who are in conflict with, with God and there is a source of evil, there is a dualistic mm. worldview, you're possibly <laughs> missing the point. I mean, we're scratching around the surface here, aren't we, on a major in-depth <laughs> way of studying the scriptures and the ancient world around it but it does seem relevant to the question that yeah, we're addressing yeah. here and and you know is there any other way of of helping us interpret this any other guide so your question was is there scriptural guidance on how we interpret these ancient texts mm. and we haven't really got to scriptural help on this yet we've just 
noted that there's this comparative studies way of maybe bringing in information and the problems that that can cause as well as the help that it might might add but fortunately there is another guide to interpreting some of these ancient texts that that we have at our disposal and that is how jesus interprets and uses the language from the old testament how the new testament writers use the language from the old testament and those concepts and so if through those comparative studies or whatever, we we are being led to a particular conclusion. But then we find Jesus using these concepts in a different way. Which are we going to give more weight to? Personally, I would give more weight to how Je- how does Jesus use mm. these concepts? And what conclusions does he draw from them? So I think that's a key point to yeah. help us think about how we interpret those ancient mm. texts. Well, how did Jesus interpret them? How mm. did Jesus, the Son of God, interpret them? the New Testament writers, mm. and put, put weight on that. Yeah, that's helpful. Okay, and let's see what the rest of Scripture, uh, how that uses yeah. or interprets mm. these things, and particularly Jesus and the New Testament. Okay, that's helpful. Well, with that introduction that's gone on for a long time, but hopefully is useful with a bit of groundwork, let's consider the devil and Satan in these terms. We've thought through how our worldview might influence this, so we've just got to be mindful of it we've got to be mindful of both the usefulness of comparative studies but also then how the rest of scripture and particularly how jesus interprets these things Mm. so with all that in mind where do we start with trying to understand what the devil and satan are in the bible so if we just start with some some statistics oh great so (laughs) so so the word devil you know if we just in our english bibles we won't find it in the old testament okay we don't find the word devil in the Old Testament. It's only in the New Testament. And it appears 37 times. Satan is the word that appears in both Old Testament and New Testament. 27 times in the Old Testament and 36 times in the New Testament. So the first thing to perhaps consider is that both of those words, devil and Satan, those words both have meanings. In other words, they're not just names or, or titles they're words that have an ordinary meaning, if you like. So devil, first of all, it's only in the New Testament. So we only have a Greek word to think about. Diabolos is the Greek word. And the meaning of that is a false accuser, or a slanderer, a deceiver, or a liar. And actually, there are some times when it's just translated as that okay. in, in the New Testament, in particular when Paul's writing to Timothy and he's explaining how leaders of the church should behave. He said they shouldn't be slanderers. They shouldn't be diabolos. They shouldn't okay. be false accusers mm. and liars and deceivers, which is kind of makes sense Yeah, yeah. for a leader of a church. Yeah. Okay. So the word devil in the Greek, it's got that meaning. So that's helpful. What about Satan? There's a similar thing here, really, that that appears in Old Testament and New Testament. So we've got a Hebrew word, mm. Satan. Uh, that's the Hebrew word. So when we read Satan in our English Bible, it's effectively just the anglicized yeah. form of just the Hebrew word. Hasn't been translated, basically. No, yeah. no. <laughs> And then when we see it in the Greek, in the New Testament, it's satanos or something like that. And so that's not been translated mm. either into mm. Greek. So it's it's going all the way through as this uh, this word Satan. And, and it's a word which means an adversary or an opponent. Okay. So how many times it appear? 27 times in the Old Testament, about a quarter of those, it's just translated as an adversary. Oh, okay. Or, or an enemy or an opponent. So it has been translated sometimes uh, as as an opponent yeah. or as ad- adversary, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, and then in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, where Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, if that had been translated as get behind me, adversary, Mm. it kind of makes sense. Peter is standing in the way of Jesus doing what he needs to do. He's opposing the destiny that Jesus has before him. An adversary would fit quite well in that. Yeah. Probably not a word I throw into my everyday sentence, though, adversary. It's probably need a <laughs> more modern, updated word. Opponent's a bit better, isn't it? But I think in management speak, you have boosters and blockers okay. to a project. There you go. Someone who blocks it, it's a blocker. Yeah. <laughs> Get behind me, blocker. Right, so there's specific meanings for these words. Does that mean we should just use that meaning every time we come across those words? I mean, sometimes they're translated with capital letters, aren't they? The devil, Satan. It sounds like Mm. it's talking about a person, but should we be changing it every time? It's good to know that there are those meanings behind those words. And sometimes, you know, often even it might be helpful just to think, well, does that, does the meaning of this word fit in in the context? For example, where Jesus is talking to Peter, can obviously refer to to somebody in that particular situation in that context both terms i would say are also used and maybe more commonly used to describe something specific so let's just explore that before we finish this episode if we go first of all to the epistle of james and this isn't a passage that refers to the devil but there's something that we want to pick up there so in james chapter 1 and I think we want to read from verse 13. So it says there, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there in those those verses, there is reference to temptation, to the possibility that people might think temptation is coming from an outside influence somewhere, in this case, God. But what those verses quite clearly say is it comes from a mm. person's own desires and lusts. That then turns into action, an act of sin, and then that leads to death. So just hold that thought okay. yeah. in mind, and now perhaps we'll look in Hebrews which is the the previous book in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. And this is a verse that does talk about the devil. Okay. Shall I read that? So, yeah. Okay. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Yeah. So there you've got something that has the power of death Mm. and it's the devil and what we've just seen in james chapter one is that it's temptation that leads to sin that that has the power of death Mm. and so we're seeing two different descriptions in which sin plays a role and then the devil plays a role and they play the same role they both have the power of death as we're in hebrews if we just flip forward to hebrews chapter nine Mm. towards the end of hebrews chapter nine again talking about 
the sacrifice of Jesus, the work of Jesus, it says, but as it is, he has appeared, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And there's a similar verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, where it says, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So there's this connection between what Jesus did and destroying something, overcoming something mm. in two of those passages it's sin mm. and then in another one it was that which has the power of death that is the devil so it's it's equating those two things so that's interesting so the devil there in the passage in hebrews 2 is a way of labeling or personifying that mm. influence or that process that we have that James talks about when we go through the temptation and sin that then leads to death and it's that that Jesus is overcoming and it's personified here as this devil, this, what was it, false accuser, I suppose, accusing God falsely in this whole process that, that we go through. It made me think, actually, later on in James, there's that passage in chapter 4 where James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So, again, mm. where's the source of all this conflict? While it's within you, it's your own yeah. temptations. Then you get verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I think that's what mm. what we're getting at there. You're right, you use the word personification. That's quite a good way of thinking of it because it wouldn't be right in those references in Hebrews and the one that you just mentioned. It wouldn't be right just to translate it as false accuser or slander because it's talking about that influence or motive in, in people that comes from... Uh, desires our hearts mm. whatever it may be it's personifying that talking about it as though it's a person okay let's just park that then we've got to somewhere with the devil and at least seen some places of where it's been used what about satan how is that used then so it seems to be used in a very similar way or, or even the same way satan seems to be an interchangeable term okay in in many cases with the devil so for example in matthew's gospel you have Jesus going into the wilderness and being tempted by the devil. The same record in Mark's gospel says he was tempted by Satan. So yeah. they're equivalent terms. So the question now is, does Satan also refer to that sort of inward mm. human desire motive that leads to temptation and sin? We'll perhaps just look at one reference in connection with that in the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 5. And this is the occasion when the church in Jerusalem is newly established and everyone's contributing their goods to the common good. And there's these characters, Ananias and Sapphira, who sell a piece of land and they come and bring the proceeds. But they only bring some of it and they say, we sold it for this amount. Mm. And actually they sold it for more. So, so they were deceiving. And in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, Peter says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? So there in just those two verses, there's two parallel descriptions of what's happened with Ananias. Satan has filled his heart, the adversary, the opponent, the blocker, mm -hmm. <laughs> has filled his heart. And then in the next verse, you've contrived this in your heart. It's come from within. So yes, it does appear that there's, there's a similar usage of the word Satan to describe and personify that influence that comes from the human heart. Mm. Yeah, and we've seen another one, haven't we, in Matthew 16, 
where Satan is used. We'll, we need to look at more of these. Yeah, there's um, plenty more. There's plenty more. And I guess for listeners, there's going to be lots of other passages or lots of other things that you perhaps be thinking of, well, well, hold on, what about this? What about Revelation with the dragon, the devil, that old serpent? What about mm. Lucifer? What about Jesus being tempted by the devil, which you've just briefly alluded to? So there's lots of other things there that we need to think through. And I suppose all we've done in this episode is seen, at least on some occasions, the way devil and Satan, those terms are used, are ways to personify that kind of sin influence that we all experience mm. and we all generate from within ourselves. I guess it doesn't fully rule out that there isn't some other part of scripture that talks about a supernatural being called a devil, but we'll have to look at that in other episodes. But it makes sense to put that on the table to say, mm. look, when we go through this one by one and systematically, it leads us towards the conclusion that we we don't have a supernatural being. I think at this point, I just want to ask the question that often comes up talking about this. This comes from a film, I think, from I think the late 90s. A very famous line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to convince the world it doesn't exist. And are we in danger of reading these passages and saying, yeah, it's not actually a, a terrifying and dangerous beast being with supernatural powers. It's just, just the human influence. And are we in danger of basically coming under the wiles of this supernatural being many Christians say we've got to know the enemy we've got to know that and believe this being exists and is real mm. because otherwise you know otherwise we're in danger somehow so what, what do you think to that yeah I suppose there's always a risk that we are we have an incomplete view we're deceiving ourselves or we're, mm -hmm. we're overlooking some part of the information that's available and you know yeah absolutely we should always be open to examining re-examining our conclusions and learning as we move forward and get better understanding of things but none of this discussion that we've had so far is about whether the devil exists or not. Okay. It's more about, is it a separate supernatural personal being mm. or is it something else? And I think from what we've said, you know, Jesus died to defeat, to overcome, to condemn, to destroy this thing that has the power of death, the devil. That's not a trivial no, no. thing. That's a great victory. And so it does exist. It is a dangerous and deadly thing. Even in the terms that we've been describing, it is the thing that has the power of death. If it's a personification of human desires that lead to godless behavior and rejection of God, and that leads to death, it's deadly. And, and maybe it's even more <laughs> deadly because it is so close to home mm. in terms of our human nature and desires. But I suppose to answer the question, you know, you need to think of it as a separate being in order to fight it. I don't know. Is it the case that Christians are, are complacent about evil? That that if we have this understanding of, of the devil as originating in the human heart and human desires and behavior, I don't feel very complacent about that. No. <laughs> and I'm not sure many Christians do. And if you look around, there's enormous good that has been done by Christians in an attempt to overcome suffering and calamity and as well as great harm done in the name of eliminating what is seen as evil or opposition. So there's not a lot of complacency around. There's maybe a lot of misunderstanding about what the enemy is. Yeah, okay. So so by trying to read the scriptures with those key points, those principles that we started with, and if that leads us to the conclusion that the devil is not a supernatural fallen angel or whatever a conflict theology mm. might lead us towards, if it's leading us towards a different conclusion that this is somehow 
teaching us about human nature, that doesn't take away the deceitfulness and the danger of what the devil is at all. In fact, mm. it might actually help us because it's helping yeah. us identify what it really is. That's helpful. So as we go through this, yeah, that we're not by no means trying to minimize what this thing is and how mm. Jesus has overcome it. So let's see if we can quickly summarize where we've got to. <laughs> okay, very quickly. So we've deliberately spent a bit of time laying some foundations and, you know, two key points from that. One is let's be careful to read the text that's there rather than coming at it with a preconceived worldview and thinking about what might be hidden behind the text if we have that particular worldview. So read the text that's there. And the second key point, give weight to how Jesus and the New Testament writers interpret Old Testament concepts. And then to the extent that we've started looking at the devil and Satan, while those words have normal meanings, their terms used also to describe the desires in humans that tempt and lead to wrongdoing or sin, and their terms used to personify that influence. And actually, that the New Testament in particular makes really powerful points about how damaging and how dangerous it is and how important Jesus' sacrifice is in, in destroying it and overcoming it. Okay, so we're just scratching the surface here. There's lots of things we need to look at in subsequent episodes. The one that comes to mind is the book of Job and the interaction with the Satan yeah. in that book. So that might come up when we think about things like the sons of God. We'll have to have to deal with that. Yeah, we should do an episode that looks at a more comprehensive look at those occurrences of devil and Satan. Okay. Apply what we thought about here and bring in some of the things you've mentioned, the dragon serpent leviathan things like that so we'll do we'll definitely yeah. do another okay. session on that and then another topic that is often dragged into this discussion is that of demons isn't it and mm. the exorcisms that happen in the new testament and what all that means it's somehow related it's somehow it's separate subject so demons and evil yeah. spirits and so that's on the list so that's number three and then probably we, we do need something that brings in these ideas of the sons of God, the mm. angels, or the ideas of fallen angels. Lucifer, you mentioned earlier, probably falls into that as well. So we'll look to cover that. Mm. Yeah, so we may pick off all those other areas. That, But if mm. there's anywhere else in the scriptures that you're thinking of that we need to look at or you'd like our views on, then get in touch and ask us and we'll see where that fits. It'd be good to do a comprehensive look of this topic because seeing as it... It's related so much to what Jesus has achieved in his sacrifice. So thanks a lot, Paul. There's a few episodes we've done in the past that link to this. There's two I can think of. One in the series on Matthew that goes through the temptations of Jesus when Jesus was tempted by the devil. So dig that one out. And then, Paul, you did your Revelation series. And I think one of those spent a bit of time looking at the beasts and links to the serpent and the dragon and, and what that yeah. might be representing. So thank you very much. There's lots more to look forward to and look forward to being with you all again. Mm -hmm.